The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Lady, don't take no shit. Insist on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak less of something worse. Singing, don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxuriously. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, the State of the Union address, and what was noticeably missing from it all, we will cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Our guest this week is a political and cultural analyst who has covered every presidential election since 1996 for outlets including CNN, NPR, and 538. She's the author of six books, that's right, I said six, including The Episodic Career, How to Thrive at Work in the Age of Disruption. She's also the creator, producer, and host of Our Body Politic, a nationally syndicated public radio show and podcast that represents the voices of Black women and women of color in politics and power and disrupts traditional media to better serve democracy for all Americans. I have been wanting to chitty chat with this woman for a long time, so please join me and welcome Farai Chidea. Thank you so much, Alicia. Oh, it's so good to have you on the pod today. How you feeling? How's your spirit? It's a new year. I mean, what do we bring in into 2023? I am bringing loving kindness and acceptance to my physical and mental health practices, which currently include going to the gym and then eating cookies. Oh, I love that so much. I love that so much. Okay, so yours is like much better than mine. I go to the gym and then I have my like one cigarette because a cigarette is always better after you go to the gym. But you know what? <laughs> we we all have our guilty pleasures. Name one person who doesn't have a guilty pleasure, and that's the person who I don't want to know because it's like, what is your deal? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, Farai, we've got so much stuff going on in the world right now. I don't even know if we're in a pandemic or not anymore. People are still getting sick from COVID, but I mean, mm-hmm. you know, anywho. Undoubtedly, though, COVID-19 has changed our lives indescribably and probably forever, at least for the rest of our lifetimes. So I got to ask you, what is the strangest habit that you have developed as a result of Miss Rona? I mean, it's not the strangest habit. It's maybe the, 
I don't think it's even a strange admission, but like my sister's a doctor and she would watch me washing my hands and be like, what is that? You know, like I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, soap, swipe, swipe. You know, the Rona made me a real hand washer and I haven't given it up. We are still in a, I call it the hemidemic because it's like mm-hmm. half like a pandemic and half not. Like if oh, you nice. want to go like to that. the football game, you can do it. If you want to mask all the time, you can do it. Yeah. And of course, there's so much cultural nuance. Like I feel really bad for people who are shamed for masking when they're not bothering anybody else. Like the the whole, do you remember when Ron DeSantis, he was at a middle school or something, and he yeah. walked on stage and says to these kids in the actual height of the pandemic, take off those masks. Guess who didn't? The little brother. Okay. <laughs> like, they was like, know. my mama told me not to take yeah, this mask like, off. Yeah, he was like, you're the governor, you're not my mama. Straight up. Straight up. That is a testament to Black families. Let me tell you what. We're going to be the last one standing, and we are 100% the key to making sure that other people stand in, too. Speaking of Ron DeSantis, I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of the state of politics in this country. Mm -hmm. And we spent the last really like eight years with this weird conversation about bipartisanship as the Republican Party was becoming an extreme fascist party, which means that bipartisanship doesn't actually mean shit in today's lexicon around politics. But there is really something in there about what it means to come together and understand where each other is coming from, right? We might change our perspective about a thing that we felt really, really strongly about. So can you tell me a story about a time when you changed your mind and tell me what happened. I mean, I want you to think about something that you were like deeply, deeply convinced was right, but then your perspective shifted. I think I was a much more traditional no guns person until I began to understand how heavily armed organized white supremacists are and how white supremacy and white nationalism has been used as a sales tool buy gun companies to basically the same way Facebook can sort of hack your brain and send you down the rabbit hole of extremism online on YouTube in order to make money. Weapons companies that are selling AR-15s and adjacent are using themes of kind of whites under siege with a fortress mentality or worse, including using terms like boogaloo Mm -hmm. um, to start gun stores. Like basically it's like, hey, do you think that there might be like a racial holy war? Come stock up just in case. Keep those Negroes where they are. Straight up, straight up. I mean, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like, this has to be, if we had a functional government, you would be able to deal with the messaging that these companies do. It is a complete myth that free speech is about protecting entities like gun companies. Free speech is about you know, you and your government and how speech interacts between you and your government. It doesn't say that you can allow companies to basically weaponize hatred to whip people up. And we're about to, I think, really see the acceleration of a series of domestic terrorism and attempts to hijack the functions of government that are not just aimed at Black people or brown people, that are aimed at any number of people who fail to pass a sort of QAnon purity test. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's dangerous. And so one of the things I had to change was I don't know how to shoot a gun. I fired a pistol once at a range. 
But I always had family in the military and family who were hunters who would send venison, you know, from Arizona to Baltimore. And, you know, I respected that. And now I am discomfited, but respect some of the people who live in areas where they know if shit pops off, they're going to have to hunker down. And I, I am so terrified to admit that. But, you know, I have a black female friend who is a visual artist and lives in a rural majority white area. And she got an AR-15. And I was like, oh, my God. And I actually, I am hoping that is completely unnecessary. But I'm, I'm having to look at the moral quandaries of so many different sides of this. You know, yep. the, the weaponization of hatred is extremely dangerous. And when people assume that it won't blow back on them, they're making the wrong assumption. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate this story that you shared with us for a few reasons. One, really taking stock of what's happening in this country. And I think we're we're right here parallel in saying this isn't a left-right problem. This isn't a Democrat-Republican problem. This is a racial violence and racial terrorism problem. Mm-hmm. that um, has marked a real shift in the politics of this country. Um, we've gone back and forth, to be clear, over <laughs> over the span of history, right? It's not like yeah. racial violence was never weaponized. In fact, racial violence is always weaponized at times when there is deep change happening in the country, often change that bends toward justice. So... That's what it is. So I appreciate that. And number two, I recently moved to the South and everybody has guns here. And yeah, I just yeah. saw uh, Trevor Noah at the Fox Theater uh, this weekend. And he said some joke that I thought was so funny, but also very true, which was he was talking about how nice everybody is to each other in Atlanta. And he was like, I think that's because everybody has guns. And I was like, no, that's actually true. Like, you don't see road rage here, right? Because you know right? You might give somebody the finger and they're going to give you a different kind of finger. That's just what it is over here. So anywho, child. Let's move on because I have so many things I want to ask you about, including... I I just have to say your nails are amazing. I'm not going to describe them, but they are superhero nails. I can't even wear nails. I can't hold anything. I can't type. I I just... And the fact is, I just noticed your nails now because... But I'm like, wow. Anyway, keep going. They're pretty fresh and I'll send you a photo because they're really good and I like them this time around. Um... But like I said, I want to talk about all the serious things. I want to talk about the state of race in this country and the state of race and journalism and the media and all the shit. But first and foremost, I just have to know more about you being a member of an improv comedy troupe called yes. the Immediate Gratification Players. Okay, so are you still active? I mean, no, I want to find the if somebody here? knows if somebody knows a geriatric improv group in in DC. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I can't be, like, making jokes about TikTok. I don't even have a TikTok account. I need people my age who I can riff with. That sounds really <laughs> awful. No, I think it could be age mix, but I'm I'm rusty, but I loved it. I did it all four years. There's this guy, Misha Globerman, who's an author and just multi-talented artist, performer, thinker. He thinks a lot about how humans communicate and Ooh. and writes about that. But he started it freshman year because— he was serious about improv, and he didn't get into the existing troupe. And then he started his own, 
And uh, I will admit this. I had a crush on him. So I ooh, I, ooh. I tried out for it because I had a crush on Misha. Ooh. So nothing happened from the crush. But aside from that, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't remember his dating history because I just really went into the lane of, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Mm. And improv was. And it was so fantastic. And I've met great people, some of whom are still my friends my roommate, Lucy Souter, actually found one of these geriatric improv groups in London where she lives. So it's super awesome that she can do it. And I really, that's one thing I thought about. I love, I think that growing up in a highly educated and routinely underemployed, not underemployed and having no job, but underemployed below their intellectual capacities, set of relatives plus improv made me who I am as an analyst. Because My family was dropping knowledge all the time. I remember being six years old and hearing my two uncles who served in Vietnam, one as an officer and one as a grunt, debate the Vietnam War. Yeah. I was all I was also one of those kids who was all in the grown folks conversation. I could tell. (laughs) (laughs) You knew enough to just be a bump on the log, but you was listening. You wanted to hear mm-hmm. what they was talking about, but you wasn't getting in grown folks conversations. I did, and I got schooled very quickly. Yes. Never did it again. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that was not cute. My grandmother was like, my grandmother basically was like, people find it creepy. You're like, and, it, and this was before the Chucky doll, but like, you're like a fucking Chucky doll. So just, <laughs> she would never use fucking, but she's she was like, you're like a fucking Chucky doll. So don't do that right. shit except when we're alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she knew what it was. Now, is there a certain set of skills that are needed for improv that have helped you in journalism? Absolutely. You gave one of the best intros when we started, which was about what were the protocols of interviewing that wasn't like speaking to the microphone. It was about what are the rules of this conversation? And I think that, you know, a lot of people have written about this, but the rule of improv is yes and. Like, you know, let's say that Mitch McConnell says that Donald Trump shouldn't be impeached. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm shocked. But yes, and <laughs> let me tell you, Mitch, you uh-huh. know, like the, the, you, you've got to get through this era of politics of just total nonsense things happening all the time, like people invading the Capitol. And this was in the book, How Civil Wars Start. And we interviewed the the author, Professor Barbara F. Walter. But she talks, she has the scene that was really chilling to me in the book in terms of how she wrote it was she was like, and these men strode into the halls of Congress like they owned it and that they were there to save the day. And just the, she she wrote about it in a kind of knowing but breathless way on purpose that let you know how much the insurrectionist crowd believes they're in the right and is willing to do whatever. And if you read in on some of the testimony, there was a family of four, it was like, Middle-aged mom and dad, and I think maybe a teen and a 20-something, but all four were being tried as adults. And in this testimony, they were like, well, we know what we did was wrong, but was it wrong? Because we were trying to save America, but that was America. But, like, I was like, oh, y'all are straight up confused. Mm -hmm. Like, they could not even, like, even if they had been diehard white nationalists— and just said, hey, let's have a family meeting about how we're going to lie under oath. That wasn't yeah. this. This was like, these were people who were like on the rotisserie, the moral rotisserie, like spinning around all of the arguments of how they showed up in America. And that's some dramatic stuff. And I just don't think white people in particular have any idea that white nationalism in its current state is not just going to harm black and brown people. All sorts of people are going to get hurt and have been hurt 
from the officers at the Capitol to, you know, people who are just like school teachers all over America right now. They're suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not being allowed to do their job and they're being put into a box and demeaned. It's horrible. a little bit about a Twitter thread that I came across. Now, I, of yours, now I, I don't do the Twitters because it's just a lot for me. I, I stay on Instagram because it's pictures and I like pictures and I don't even have to look at the words because it's pictures. But Twitter, you gotta, you gotta read the words and then people use a lot of words and be funking with each other. So I don't really do it. But <laughs> when I saw that you had a thread today, honey, I had to, um, get deep in there. It went quite viral. So for folks who are listening, uh, Fry, you were formerly employed at 538 with pollster Nate Silver, who's often been credited with predicting the outcomes of key political races. And in the news this week, it's rumored that he's being laid off by 538. And you took to Twitter to discuss how it was to work there as an employee under his leadership. Now, there's so much to talk about in there, but I want to actually ask you to zoom out a little bit. Why do you think that it is so challenging for people not just to speak up about problematic dynamics at work? I mean, that's like a functional, practical thing. But I want to talk about like the constant battle that we have to make race matter differently when it comes to polling and politics. I mean, like, what is the impact of the way we talk about race or don't on our political landscape, the outcome of politics? And really, like, how we talk about what's happening in this country overall. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, for those who want a deeper dive, I did talk to Tremaine Lee's podcast right after the 2016 election about my experience at 538 because I wanted to leave a record. And it really consisted of what I call intellectual belittlement, which is like basically like no matter how much evidence you bring to the table, your idea is wrong which then results in lower word counts and things like that, you know, you don't want as a journalist. Um, Anyway, I'm going too deep down the rabbit hole. You can go to Tremaine's thing. Let me get back on track. There is no way that we would have American politics without American journalism. In the mix of American journalism and technology, Donald Trump got billions of dollars more in free media coverage than all of the other Republican candidates combined. So the sort of for-profit media put its thumb on the scales of the attention economy. Facebook and other online platforms echoed that in different ways, including allowing weaponized content from disinformation in both the U.S. and abroad. What journalism and tech have in common is fake meritocracy, Mm. where all the time— The top companies are like, we're just better. And then they fire people like AI scientist Timnit Gebru. Mm. And they fire Tiffany Cross. Because what you want is more of the same. You know, there's something called social replication, which is like a lot of people tend to just put little versions of them into leadership because that's that involves no conflict. And I think the key to great leadership is to be able to process conflict well. Because To me, a great newsroom is one where you 
do have people from different races, different social classes, different psychographics, and you begin to understand each other, not the newsroom where everyone believes the exact same thing. And um, unfortunately, I ended up in a newsroom where one of the blind spots was one of my specialties, which made me sad. I started covering white supremacists face-to-face, by phone, in the mid-90s, because as someone from a family where part of my family were free farmers in Virginia before and during the Civil War, and one of my great-grandmothers was almost kidnapped by the patrollers, a la 12 Years Mm -hmm. a Slave, when she was a Mm -hmm. child. And then on the other side, it was black farmers and home builders in Maryland, which was also a slaveholding state, but where Grandpa Bob, my mother's grandfather, actually had white allies and things like that. So I would hold those dualities of experience in my mind. So I started interviewing white supremacists to say what makes some people allies, da-da-da. And obviously the theme of resentment kept coming up, racial resentment. But every newsroom I'm in, you know, I have been in, kept doing things like covers about Black people. What's their deal? What's their problem? Did you Have you ever seen a white people, what's their deal, what's their problem no, cover? Child, ever? No, anywhere? No, no. I did see some racial healing, yeah. some shit on the TV the other day. And I was like, why do we always have these conversations with Black people? I don't think that we need to heal from racism violence. I think white people need to heal. Why don't they ever have panels of white people talking about racism? Yep. And, you know, my newsroom is very multiracial. My senior producer is a a white woman who I used to work with at a different job who we share a lot of values and we also share high skills for pattern recognition. So this is the analogy I've been using in my head, and this is the first time I'm speaking it out loud. So imagine a Surat painting, which is made up of pointillism, like a bunch of little dots of different colors. So you say all of the black dots you know, get off the painting because you're biased. You say to all of the yellow dots, you know, you guys go huddle in the corner because you're messing up the view. You say to the red dots, you you get the analogy. And so when you start excising people from the American newsroom or from politics or from any form of power, what you get is a fucked up painting Mm -hmm. because you can't see shit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the lens we've been looking at and now some... Really hard things are sneaking up on us, um, but they've been sneaking for years. I started first seeing the signs of the, what I call the democracypocalypse coming uh, in the 2010 midterms, covering Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And I was like, oh, this is not just about somebody violating civil rights. It's like somebody violating civil rights and defying the federal government once convicted in order to make a point about the reallocation of power. Mm-hmm. It was like leaving Michael Brown's body in the middle of the street. It was a signal. You know, this is helpful and important for a bunch of reasons because I think two things. One, people get confused when folk in these newsrooms who are making these decisions are also us, but they're making the same decisions that us didn't make before. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so— You know, I I want people to understand, and maybe you can give people more background here about what happens when we lose people like you from a 538 or when we lose a Tiffany Cross from MSNBC. I mean, what is the consequence 
and I know you did the analogy, right? But what's the consequence, mm-hmm. even in terms of like what it is that people get in their boot box every day? So right now on my way in, I was listening to C-SPAN to Democrats talking about the debt ceiling limit. And someone said, and I can't give you a fact check right now, a female congressperson said that the debt went up 25% under Trump, that there was like hundreds of years of debt and then a 25% increase under Trump. And now people are poor mouthing. Like he was a one-term president who traveled ridiculously much for pleasure blew up all of the Secret Service expenses, and that's a personal thing, but he also wanted to undermine uh, things like IRS enforcement, mm-hmm. which you continue to see mm-hmm. in the current Republican Congress. How do you think your salary gets paid, Congress people? <laughs> it's called taxation. <laughs> but, you know, that whole Grover Norquist thing of, like, making the government small enough to drown in a bathtub, the complete irony of this is that the government bloats under Republican leadership, Mm -hmm. and then they want to drown it in the bathtub Mm -hmm. when a Democrat's in office. Just do the math. Go back and read deficit numbers from administration to administration and call me later. Yeah. It's it's just, that's what's missing is a critical analysis. It's like, to bring it back to what you actually asked, there's so much both sidesism that is bad journalistic practice. It's not about Like, first of all, I'm not a both-sides person. I'm a many-sides person. So if there's an issue around policing, I want to know about the police who are ethical and who are trying to make it a better department. I want to know about the police who are unethical. I want to know what their internal affairs process is around that and how likely a conviction is to emerge, if necessary, against a police officer. I want to know about different communities. I want to know about how white flight shaped this neighborhood so that it takes the form that it takes. You know, like, there's a lot of stuff I want to know. And so much both sidesing is just, and I think this is what my Twitter thread got to, an excuse for intellectual mediocrity. And we cannot afford that right now. Like, we are in an existential crisis as a nation. Let's talk about our body politic. And first and foremost, let me just say thank you. Thank you for your work. And thank you for your work. Oh, I mean, honestly... It's so good, y'all. You need to like tune in if you don't turn in. And I'm not even a podcast person. I'll tell you, honestly, like I have a podcast. There's like three podcasts I love and yours is one of them. But I want to thank you for your work to like bring us a podcast that doesn't just do that thing about how issues impact women. We know how the fuck all these issues impact (laughs) us. But I love about your pod that you're talking about how women impact the issues, which honest to God, honest to God, is not only long overdue, but it's always the real story. And I'm always driven batshit bonkers, right? When we talk about even things like voting, right? And just because we're women doesn't mean that we do dope shit all the time. It means that we know how to impact things because of our position in society. And a lot of us are fighting for different shit that's related to what we think we can get, okay? So when we talk about white suburban women and why white suburban women be voting against their motherfucking interests all the time, it's Mm -hmm. because of what they think they can get. So anywho, 
I'm glad that you actually dive into this shit. You dive into the culture wars and what the fuck is going on right now and how women are shaping that. And I just want to ask you, like, why come from that particular angle when you could do the, like, bubblegum puppies and flowers version of, like, oh, look at the way that women are being impacted by X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah. Tell me why you're coming from this particular angle. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. And it's really weird. I'm much more of a narrative podcast person. So, like, instead of Netflix and chill, I'm like horror podcast and chill. Yeah. But that's another whole I love thing. it. I love it. But, you know, I'm a third-generation Black female journalist. My grandmother freelanced for the Baltimore Afro-American mm. and published both journalism and fiction. My mother had a brief but wondrous journalism career where she— uh, was in the Peace Corps in Morocco after growing up in a working-class neighborhood in, in Baltimore, first in Turner Station, then Baltimore. Um, went to Morocco in one of the early Peace Corps classes, went to grad school at Syracuse, met my dad, who's Zimbabwean, interned at the Washington Post in 1967, and had no journalism career to speak of because mm -hmm. she was uh, and remains a black woman mm -hmm. with two kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was getting a divorce and— I think my whole career is also built in the shadow of my mom's unappreciated intellect. She spoke fluent French, some German, and some Arabic. Oh, wow. And people judged her unworthy of a job because they were fucking terrified mm -hmm. of her. Mm -hmm. Terrified. You know? And so I really look at all the ways, and she worked in, you know, was a medical technologist in a hospital dealing with the phlebotomist and then was a teacher for many years in Baltimore and educated kids who became doctors and PhDs and some who died in drug violence and one who became a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And she saw it all. And I think what I learned from my family was to live in an acceptance of the good, the bad and the ugly and to not expect meritocracy. And that has been Anytime that I get illusions that we live in a meritocracy for the allocation of capital, attention, or other resources, I'm like in an emotional tailspin. But if I'm just like, well, you know, like my great-grandmother was almost kidnapped by the patroller, yeah. so let's go out and have that fancy meal yeah. <laughs> and yeah. come back and write a Twitter thread, yeah. you know. Yeah. Thank you, great-grandma, for not getting kidnapped and sold down south. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And I do kind of hate that, like, let's look at the bad old days. But here is something that is fascinating. And maybe I need to write, like, something more about this. Yeah. But Black Americans are much more optimistic than white Americans, despite the fact that we have a tenth of the resources, face racial terrorism. Like, the level of depression of white people around what they perceive as the failings of society while holding most of the cards is fascinating. And it also gets back to the book, How Civil Wars Start, because the people who end up lighting the fire are people who feel like they had power and they are declining in their power. Thus, coup attempt in Germany by upper class Germans. It wasn't like some dude on the corner trying to overthrow the German government. Like, keep your eyes on the ball, folks. Like, Peru, Germany, all the countries, you know, Hungary, who either have stable authoritarian leaders, Orban, like, I've got this, you know, iron fist, not even inside a velvet glove, or places that are teetering. And, you know, we are not doing that great, folks.
And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't going to do this week. Number one, act like Beyonce wasn't robbed at the Grammys. So this week we dusted off the Grammys because we wanted to see the queen get her due. Okay. And we thought we might even see her perform. And we know that she's the goat when it comes to a live performance. But the whole ass reason we let the Grammys collect dust in the first fucking place is because really it feels like it's no longer about artistry and really just about like some weird click shit. And clearly Queen is not a part of the click. Now, sure, Renaissance won some well-deserved awards, including even winning a category that didn't exist before Best Dance or Electronic Album. And winning that award made her the winningest artist in Grammy history. Okay. And as y'all know, when you a winning negress, people love to hate. And the Grammys been trying to put the queen in her place by not giving her the well-deserved and deeply coveted Album of the Year award. Instead, giving it to Harry Styles. What? Now, really, though, allow us our Kanye moment before that fool really went the fuck off the deep end. But come the fuck on. You gonna choose Harry Styles over Adele, Lizzo, Bad Bunny, and Beyonce? Now, this is why people be looking at this shit talking about it's rigged, because it is. Further, there was an interview done with a Grammy voter who gets to remain anonymous, and they said that while Beyonce was a strong artist, they didn't vote for her because basically they didn't like how self-important she was. Now, number one, how much you want to bet that anonymous voter was a white man? And also, are we still calling black women uppity when we love ourselves and when we do good shit and when we win? I'm shocked, except I'm not at all. Other things Lady just ain't going to do this week. Look, just when you thought it couldn't get worse. So we found out some new shit this week as it relates to the case of Tyree Nichols a young black man who was literally murdered by Memphis police officers. Now, first, yet another officer was fired for his involvement in the murder. And he was, mm, drumroll please, a white officer who tased Tyree. And then when the brother ran, could be heard saying on his own body camera video, I hope they stomp his ass. Now, what in the overseer nonsense is this? Oh, you know, America. Now, if you watch the video, which I most definitely did, this clown was out here in the first few minutes of the video and you most definitely could see his white ass hands, which was interesting to me because, you know, the civil rights people were exclaiming that black officers need to be held accountable just like white officers. But they never noted that the white man started it and the black officers finished it. Now, this is definitely a what did you know and when did you know it moment? But catch this. Also, why did it take all this time to fire his ass? You know, he got put on a paid administrative leave first. Okay. And now, only now, do we hear the police union has something to say with they weak asses. And is it a coincidence that they just started talking like right now? I mean, if it wasn't so typical, it might be comical. But that's not even the most egregious shit even, if you can believe it. We also found out this week that the black officers, after they beat this nigga literally to death, propped him up and took pictures of his bloodied, beaten body and then sent them to his homies. Now, I would tell you something is rotten, but instead I'll just say nothing to see here 
because everything is functioning exactly as it usually does. Don't let me hear y'all talk about community policing or body cameras or training. No, not no more. I mean, for real, please miss me with that shit. Because to be real, like the realest of real, they were trained and they were watched and they lived in the damn community. You cannot make this shit up. It's not bad apples, my friends. Y'all be like, not every cop. And sure, I'm going to give it to you. Police have and play many different roles. Like, is the admin lady cop whooping on black people? Probably not. But I promise you, if your job is to whoop on people, you telling me you're not going to do your actual job? Because that was their job. They were put into a unit called the Scorpion Unit designed to intimidate, harass, and brutalize people as a designated function. Now go on and sit with that one. Let's get into what Lady likes this week, though, because Jesus, Lord, pray for me. Number one, and the only thing on this list, because, yeah, is Biden's State of the Union address. And more than the words, it was the swag for me. Now, honestly, the best thing this week was President Joe Biden's State of the Union address for a few reasons. But the first one is that it was a masterclass on strategy. President Biden played his position in a way I hope filters all the way through the Democratic Party child. Let me explain. First of all, Joseph Robinette Biden did not come to play with these Republican hoes. He said all the things with his whole ass chest, and it was the first time in a long time that we saw somebody who was actually more inclined to try and work with these people just actually really set the fucking terms. He said, if you do this, I will veto it so many times, and each time, baby, I cackled. I wanted to get the man a beer. Now, if you try to play me on abortion, healthcare, social security, the economy, or basically any number of things, you will catch these veto hands. Here for it. Second, and my friends, please catch this because it really does matter. He actually addressed police violence, coming with the best and even better, to be honest, than Obama line, everyone deserves to make it home. He did not, not one time, say police need more money. That is a marked shift from what he's been saying literally since 1994 when he was a part of the super predator machine. Now look, y'all, the president is a police-loving-ass dude. But it is a big deal in the land of wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed politics that he did not one time say more money for police. Now, on the movement side, I really need y'all to claim and amplify and build on this. Small but important victory, because I have said it before and I will say it again, the window is closing. It is an organizing opening, if that's what we're really doing here. He's not going to abolish the police. And, but, and, we can get closer if we step into this opening where, for right the fuck now, he is trying to say something to Black voters. Get with the program. (laughs) Welcome back to Ladies Love Notes, where we give you all of the real about being single and dating in your 40s. Now, this week, we are taking on a listener question. Here it goes. Listen. So I'm in the process of finalizing my divorce and recently met someone amazing. We've been dating for a few weeks and I'm remembering what it's like to be liked and like someone back. It's really nice. Only thing is, he asked me when I would be comfortable coming out on social media. And honestly, sis, I was shook. It's not that I'm concerned about people knowing we are dating per se, but I'm not officially divorced. 
We both have relatively public profiles, so I want to make sure I'm honoring the seriousness of our potential future while holding the current reality of my legal situation. So my question is, lady, when should couples make it IG or Facebook official? Okay, girl. This one has a few layers to it, child, so let's get into it. Now, first and foremost, thank you for bringing your question our way. There's a few pieces of your question that stand out to lady. One, you're in the process of finalizing your divorce. Two, you've been dating a new person for a few weeks, and it sounds like it's been lovely. Three, you were shook when he asked you when you'd be comfortable coming out as a couple. And finally, y'all want to do it on Beyonce's internet. So let's take each one of these pieces on, one at a time. All right, so you're in the process of finalizing your divorce. Now, for those who don't know or haven't been through this shit, it's the worst. A divorce process seriously is enough to make you say, now, why did I get married again? It doesn't always have to be ugly, but it most definitely involves a lot of negotiating. And then, of course, you're almost always dealing with hurt feelings or some kind of feelings, And so there's just like a lot on the table and there's a lot going on. And the shit really does take a long time. It's not like a breakup where one minute you're together and the next minute you're not. I mean, listen, a divorce is like literally and legally untangling your life with another person. In California, they make you wait six months before you can finalize anything, even if you're on the same page. It's a lot, child. Which leads me to the second piece. You like this person you're dating. It's been a few weeks, and you're remembering what it's like to be liked and like someone back. I think that's awesome. It's totally the point of dating. Finding someone you like and who likes you back. Sounds like it's been a few weeks of total bliss, so congratulations, sis. Which leads me to the next point. They want to know when you're good with letting folks know that you're dating in the public. And you got shook. Can I be honest, sis? I would be too. I'm just saying. I mean, you really just started dating. You didn't say a few months, honey. You said a few weeks. What's the rush to make it Instagram official? Now, here's what I mean by this. Those of us who have been in long-term relationships be forgetting about how to just date. Questions about monogamy aside, because I know some of y'all be on the poly shit. Okay, I get it. Y'all like each other a lot, and that makes sense. Do y'all need to come out as a couple? Oh, no. I mean, you're not going to date nobody else? You just ready to lock it down right now? How come, sis? Wasn't you just locked down? Let's discuss. I'd like to propose that you're going through a whole process that, to be real, it's emotional. Now, whether you were done already or not, or just want it to be over or not, it's emotional. Lady thinks that that, in and of itself, just deserves its own space to be complete without bringing in some whole other dynamic. Like Janet said, let's wait a while. Now, Lady ain't saying don't get down. Now listen, if the streets are calling, honey, pick up the phone. But, and, just because you in these streets and hailed a cab don't mean everybody got to know where you're going and what your destination is. (sighs) Lady raises an eyebrow at a brother who don't get that. And I suspect that anything or anyone worth standing still with for a bit, they're not going to be trying to lock it down when you're still trying to move out. So the verdict here is this. 
Lady advises that you enjoy everything you're feeling and learning and remembering and just stay there for a bit. Tell your girlfriends what you would be telling the gram. Leave a little room for yourself, sis. You just got free. Now, maybe you decide you want to lock it down. Maybe you don't. But don't let the gram get in the way, child. And y'all public, too? No, ma'am. Let the streets talk. Sometimes it's better when you don't participate. <laughs> Love you, girl. much more to talk about for I, but we got to wrap up. I, I want to know how can people who are listening to this conversation find you on the socials and find your awesome, awesome, awesome podcast, Our Body Politic. Thank you so much. So um, I personally am Farai, F-A-R-A-I on Twitter only because um, I'm the opposite. I'm words versus image. <laughs> so our Insta is Our Body Politic. And also a Twitter of the same name. Mm. So thank you so much, Alicia. Oh. I love this so much. And you have to come on our show. Oh, I would love to. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being on our show. You gave me a lot to think about. That's it for Lady Don't Take No. But I'll be back next week with a brand new conversation. And of course, some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us. And please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what you like. Tell us what's on your mind. And tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Meta or Facebook or what the fuck ever at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. And we really, really, really appreciate it when you subscribe and when you write us a review. So let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is Bioterics. This pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me, I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, policing is working exactly how it's supposed to. Beyonce was robbed, but that's okay. We don't fuck with the Grammys, no way. And Joseph Robinette Biden gave us something we could feel in that State of the Union address, honey. And then, of course, slow and steady wins the race, if there even is a race. That's right. I said it. Because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no. She insists on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. If she won't speak, less of something worse. Saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Never luxurious. Okay.